Last time I had an experience like that, I was at a prayer meeting in Ghana hearing prayers in Akan and in English all rising up at the same time. It's really an amazing experience. On this Pentecost Sunday, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 14. As you turn there, I just want to remind you that Matthew, about Matthew's message. Matthew wants us to know that the king of God's righteousness, by which the reign of God's shalom will come upon the earth as it is in heaven, that king has come, and his name is Jesus. Matthew has told this story through the narrative of Christ's birth, baptism, and temptation, and he has followed that by five discourses on the design of God's righteousness for life in this world. And those discourses have been interspersed with powerful demonstrations of that life at work in this world. And then Matthew's accounting and telling that story climaxes here in this final section in the narrative of the passion of the Christ where we find ourselves today. We have seen in the opening of this section in chapter 26 that the powers of this age, the kings of the nations, are in fact aligning themselves in conspiracy against Jesus. But we have also seen that their many conspiracy as broad and as complicated as it may appear to us, is but a part of Christ's own greater cosmic conspiracy to make all things new. Today, we watch as the raging conspiracy of the nations begins to take shape in the heart and the mind and the actions of Judas. The story of Judas is for us a cautionary tale. For it demonstrates how even those closest to Jesus, even for extended times, are vulnerable, perhaps even prone to the spirit of the age and can find themselves not only overlooking Jesus, but misunderstanding Jesus, trying to press past Jesus, even opposing Jesus. Truly, at a deep level, I find in my own self the heart of Judas save, of course, for the mercy of God, the mercy of God alone. So read with me just a couple verses. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they said to him, 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him, that is, to betray Jesus. So let us go and ask that by his spirit, we would be granted understanding. And so, Father, we do come uh, to this time and this hour that you have set aside for us, your people, to gather in your presence to behold your glory and to be changed by the proclamation of your word. So we pray, Father, that you would... Feast us upon your truth, guard us from error, and grant to us their spirit, (coughs) 
And that, Father God, we may understand and we may believe and we may rejoice and that we may be changed. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. Excuse me just a moment. I thought this was over. <clears throat> Apparently not. Je suis, je suis Charlie is my horrible brutalization of a French expression that became popular a couple years ago. It's a slogan that was created after, in January of 2015 after the shooting at the offices of the French satirical weekly newspaper, Charlie Hebdo, in which you might remember 12 people were killed. It stunned the world. We found ourselves transfixed by the events of that day, watching and wondering, how could this happen in Paris, of all places? The Translation is, I am Charlie. And it quickly became a hashtag on Twitter. And it identifies the speaker or the user of the hashtag with those who were killed at the Charlie Hebdo shooting. It was a way of showing solidarity with the victims. I am Charlie. We often find ourselves, depending on the nature of the case, identifying either with heroes in, in a given event or with the victims of a given event. In this case, with the 12 who were killed at their workplace in Paris. They just went to work and they planned to be home that night for dinner and a movie, perhaps. Or we celebrate the heroic teachers who quite heroically and understandably and wisely and stunningly step into the line of fire to protect those who have been entrusted to their care. Rarely, however, do we recognize in ourselves the heart and the mind or the actions of the perpetrator of what we hold out as arm's length as a senseless, irrational act of violence. Who in their right mind would do such a thing, we say? And yet, until and unless I recognize the seeds of that senselessness in my own heart, then I will not comprehend the scandalous wonder of Christ's love. Because, you see, we are naturally in the thrall of our enemy who prowls about seeking whom he may destroy. And if we are not watching, and if we are not waiting, and if we are not preparing, and if we are not working diligently, he will devour our souls and our lives and our livelihoods without us even knowing it. Just this week, we saw unfold another tragedy in Texas, in Santa Fe, Texas. And in response to that tragedy unfolding there on Friday, Pastor Kenny Luck of Everyman Ministries writes this. 
When we see so-called senseless acts of murder like this, we have to remember that a process of thought actually made sense of this to of this to the one doing the murdering. And that is where evil begins. In the mind, in the heart. A lie regarding how to best resolve an inner dilemma is considered, it is accepted, it is internalized, it is acted upon. Because, brothers and sisters, beliefs drive behaviors, which is why troubled and uncomforted and deeply distressed minds are vulnerable to the evil suggestions of our enemy. Jesus Christ, he continues, told us who is behind this. Told us who is behind this process and product of human behavior when he called the dark one a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So I am increasingly slow to self-righteously judge Judas. Not because his betrayal was not horrific, or scandalous, or shocking. Not because his actions were not, as we mistakenly call such things nowadays, senseless. His actions were senseless in a manner of speaking, though they made horrifying sense to him. His betrayal was horrific, it was scandalous, and it was shocking. No, I am increasingly slow to self-righteously judge Judas because I am increasingly aware of the blindness and bent of my own heart. Bound as it is in so many ways to the deceits and the powers of the spirit of our age to which he also was enslaved. Judas, quite without his own awareness, was so entangled and so enslaved by the spirit of his age that, listen to this, even after walking and talking, seeing and hearing and eating and drinking with Jesus every day, 24-7, 365, for three years, he could not understand, recognize, believe, or rejoice in the stunning wonder and wisdom of God's righteousness and love that was on full and glorious display before his very eyes. Think about that. He walked with him and talked with him. He ate with him. He drank with him. He saw him and he heard him every day for three years. And he had no idea who he was. This is why all three synoptics, including ours here, identify Judas as, quote, one of the twelve. One of the twelve! Jesus' inner circle! For three years! I'd like to think that if I met Jesus, I would immediately recognize him. I would immediately hear him. I would immediately believe him. I would immediately follow him. But the tragic story of Judas gives me sobering pause. 
Judas is a cautionary parable to my sincere and earnest presumption. Hashtag, I am Judas. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Pour out your spirit upon me that I may have strength and courage and wisdom to marvel at and to feast upon and to live in harmony with the mystifying glory of your love in Jesus Christ. Because it does not come easy. Look at this. Matthew starts out this portion of this account saying, Then one of the twelve. Then. Tote, one of the twelve, we encountered the same word in verse 3, then the chief priests. And in Matthew's use of this, we get overtones that even so, this is a conspiracy that is unfolding at Jesus' own direction, in Jesus' own timing. The verse, chapter 26 opens with Jesus had finished saying all of these things, and he said, now you know that the Son of Man, it's time for him to be delivered up as the Paschal Lamb. And only after saying that, then this conspiracy begins to form. And it's only after this anonymous woman elsewhere identified perhaps as Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes in and so prodigally pours out her livelihood upon him in that sacrifice of oil. Only then, is Judas incited to carry out his actions. Matthew wants us to recognize that nothing is happening here without Jesus' own command and control. He is the orchestrator. He is the conductor of this symphonic cosmic conspiracy in in which the conspiracy of the chief priests, the elders, and now Judas is but a part. Remember that. In this case, particularly, it was only after allowing the woman to enact this epic kingdom parable of worship and double anointing, one for his burial as well as for his coronation, that Jesus allows Judas to proceed because everything must be done decently and in order after all. And so that raises the question, what was it that motivated Judas? What was it that incited him at this point? Matthew and John both seem to suggest that it was Judas's greed as the motivating factor. And that's probably true. However, it's interesting that Judas goes and he makes this deal with the chief priest for 30 pieces of silver. It's a pittance especially when put right next to the value of the oil that the woman poured upon Jesus. The value of that oil we estimated to be at, what, $45,000, $48,000 or something like that? The estimate of this 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave, about a third of what the woman poured out on Jesus' head, perhaps seven, $7,500, maybe $8,000. If the motive was greed, or more generally gain of some sort, the thinking is that in disillusionment, 
Judas finally effectively says, that's it. I might as well get something out of this. I'm clearly not going to get what I thought I was going to get out of this. And so he sells out Jesus for the price of a slave. Well, at least I can pay down some bills. Was it simple greed? Perhaps. Was it a desire for gain? Perhaps. Was it a passion to overthrow the Romans at any cost? Perhaps. There is much discussion about exactly what motivated Judas. After all, whenever we see so-called senseless acts of violence such as we have this week, we long for there to be a sensible explanation. Some way that we can say, oh, that's him and this is me. I'm not like that. But the four major theories regarding Judas's motivation boil down to one common denominator. Judas had a set idea. Listen to me. Judas had a set and immovable idea of how Jesus would and should fulfill his, messi- his own messianic understanding and expectations. Jesus wasn't doing that. Jesus wasn't measuring up. In Judas's mind, Jesus was repeatedly falling short of what he believed was the clear scriptural expectation for the Messiah. And so in disillusioned and disappointed anger, Judas says, that's it. He's got to go. It is clear That the most common expectations of the coming Messiah in the day was that he would be the great political, military, economic liberator by whose rule would begin Israel's never-ending worldwide reign. Again and again, right up to the day of Pentecost, the disciples themselves expected Jesus to overthrow Rome like all reasonable, sensible, normal revolutionaries would have done. And so we should be very slow to judge the foolishness of the disciples, the denials of Peter and the betrayals of Judas. For we regularly expose our own hearts of denial and betrayal too. Hashtag, we are Judas. We want to love Jesus until we don't. (laughs) We want to follow Jesus until we don't. We want to obey Jesus until we don't. We want to be his disciples until we don't. We want to be justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, until we insist on justifying ourselves before our spouses, our children, our co-workers, and our bosses. We want to love our neighbor until our neighbor is mean to us or stinks or impinges upon our rights. We want to love the poor until the poor move in next door and knock on our door. We want to love the stranger in our midst until they cut us off in traffic or build a mosque next to us. We want to serve our spouse until they ask us. We want to follow Jesus in fixing people and fixing communities until his strategy and timetable frustrate our plans and our timetables 
for realizing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So as one commentator puts it, if we are not careful, the mind of Judas can grip socially sensitive Christians and lead them to apostasy. Lead them, that is, to shove Jesus aside, moving him, moving him out of our way so we can get on with his agenda. Judas had an agenda. It was Jesus' agenda, and Jesus was getting in the way. In other words, we find ourselves picking and choosing the Jesus we want to believe and trust, while conveniently overlooking and setting aside those aspects of Jesus' life that bother us, confuse us, or challenge us. But it is precisely, listen to me, it is precisely at these points that we discover in us the heart of Judas. As Tim Keller says it, when we encounter Jesus, either you will have to kill Jesus or you will have to crown him. But the one thing you can't do is just say, huh, what an interesting guy. Or as our mothers may have said it when we were growing up, I don't think you should play with Jesus. Someone is going to get hurt or killed. Which, of course, is the point. Which king will we serve? Whose kingdom will we build? Whose will will win? Whose vision and strategy for living and loving well in a world such as ours will win the day? Or the moment? Or the conversation? Or the relationship? Or the year? But at that point, not only do we discover in us the heart of Judas, but we discover, if we look at it long enough, the heart of Jesus. I'm going to have to ask that you track with me. Shake your heads. Wake up. Because herein, at this very point, we discover the real gospel of Judas. Not the fake one that is wandering around and appears every couple years. But the real gospel of Jesus, Judas. For it was for just such hearts, like Judas's, like Peter's, like Paul's, like mine, like yours. For just such hearts hearts that Jesus came. The structure of the passage makes the point. The heart of Judas, the heart that is bound and blinded by the lies and the deceits of the spirit of our age, is precisely the heart that Jesus came to save. That's what made the gospel necessary. Because we were dead in our enslavement. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. It's because we have the heart of Judas that Jesus came. Matthew has repeatedly shown us that the glory 
of God's love in Jesus is especially visible to those who dwell in darkness. That is especially visible to the Gentiles who are self-evidently alien from the benefits of God's faithfulness and love and covenantal blessings. That, that God's love in Jesus is especially sweet to the least and the lost and the lonely. Yes! I knew we'd get an amen one day. That this is such a passion of Matthew's makes absolute sense because he is the failed Jew. He is the fallen Jew. He is the one that has betrayed the covenant faithfulness of our, of our God. He is the one that has thrown his lot in with those despised Romans. He is a tax collector. Matthew knows the sweetness of Jesus as the Messiah because he was lost and without hope because of his own betrayal. Matthew has repeatedly shown us that Jesus, for some strange and scandalous reason that makes no sense whatsoever, delights to forgive and to welcome and to embrace and to fellowship with notorious sinners such as Matthew himself and me and you. In this passage, this is precisely the straw that broke Judas's arrogant, self-righteous back. You see, Jesus welcomed and affirmed and honored the scandalous, prodigally irresponsible waste and worship of this woman. The act itself had overtones of impropriety. Matthew tells us that all the disciples, together with Judas, were indignant at that great offering. It is only Judas, though, who actually is incited to action. Why? Because Jesus responds to this woman's provocative act and his simultaneous rebuke to the disciples for their indignation was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It was the spark that ignited the tinder of Judas's festering disdain and disillusionment and disgust. That is not how the kingdom of God's righteousness should come. That is not how God's anointed and appointed one should act. And if it did, if the kingdom of God's righteousness did intend on in coming this way, Jesus saw, Judas saw no way of gaining from it. For if that is the righteousness of God's kingdom, then gaining power, position, and prestige and wealth in such a kingdom will mean, well... Laying down power and prestige and position and wealth. Even your very life. Perhaps even your livelihood. If that is the kingdom of God's righteousness, thinks Judas, then I can have no part of it. That is it, Jesus. I am done with your shenanigans. But here's the irony. For it was at just that point, it was at that point when he most desperately needed the hope of Jesus that he rejected it. 
It was for just such hearts in such places, hearts that have been tra- have, have betrayed and been and tend toward betrayal, that Christ came to rescue such hearts bound in such slavery and blindness. Truly, the conspiracy in which we find ourselves swept up becomes, in Christ's hands, the very strategy by which he rescues us. That's why Augustine, commenting on this, says, Rejoice, Christian! What Judas sold and what the priests bought has now become yours. Christ's life is now yours. That's good news. That is the real good news that is hidden in the tragic story of Judas. He was deeply offended by the idea that Jesus, God's anointed and appointed Messiah, would come into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Judas, in other words, was offended for all the right reasons, but he came to all the wrong conclusions. So bound and blinded was he by the spirit of his age, so offended was he, he was offended by the very facts that were his only hope. so offended and scandalized by this gospel that at the very time that he most needed that, he most wished that such a thing could be true, he found it unimaginable to say nothing of finding it actually believable. The very hope for redemption that he, for which he himself hungered was the very thing that so offended him that he abandoned Jesus and betrayed him. Is it I? That's the question that um, Mark records for us. Judas asking along with all the other disciples, is it I? Am I the one who will betray you? Is it I? Is it I? Have you ever wondered why all the disciples asked that question? We're blinded in in a sense because we know the end of the story. But all the disciples are asking that question. Why? Well, because when we are honest, we should recognize that the seeds of denial, abandonment, and betrayal lie deep within our hearts, and we are faced with that question 10,000 times a day in every relationship, in every responsibility, in every conversation, in every circumstance. Will I speak words of edification and encouragement to this person who is irritating me, or will I abandon them and betray them with words of arrogant ridicule and rage? Will I delight to serve them at at cost to time and energy, comfort and convenience? Or will I grumble and complain about my plans and my agenda being interrupted and thwarted? As Paul, you will remember that great passionate persecutor, murderer of Christians, grew in his understanding of the wonders of God's love for him through Jesus and his also growing in a clearer and deeper and broader self-understanding, he realizes, oh my goodness, Hashtag, I am the least of the apostles. Hashtag, I am the least among the saints. Hashtag, I am Judas. Hashtag, I am chief among all sinners. Hashtag, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The tragic story of Judas is preserved for us as a cautionary parable. Is it I? 
How and to what extent am I bound and blinded by the spirit of the age so that I am unable to see or hear or believe or rejoice in the ways of God's love and wisdom in the person of Jesus? Remember, Peter also abandoned Jesus, betraying him, giving, up, giving him up to the crushing wheels of injustice by his cowardly denials. You see, our abandonments, our denials, our cowardice, our ignorance, our arrogance, our betrayals are common to us all in varying degrees, in varying times, in varying places. But they are common to us. What was the difference then between Peter and Paul on the one hand and Judas on the other? Well, one heard the good news and was disgusted. And like Javert and Les Miserables, he could not imagine living in such a world. The others heard the good news and recognized that this is the only way to live in such a world. That this is the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. Receiving the rich mercies of our Father through Jesus and granting the rich mercies of our Father through Jesus to others is the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. Resting and rejoicing in the mystifying ways of our Father's loving providences through Jesus rather than grumbling that our little kingdom is not coming in heaven as it is in our petty little imaginations is the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. Receiving the bounty of our Father's forgiveness through Jesus Christ and granting the bounty of our Father's forgiveness through Jesus to others is the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. It's the only way that His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. It is the only way that His will is done in our lives as it is in heaven. Delighting, to delight in those around us, the least, the lost and the lonely, the neighbor, the stranger, the enemy, the drunk, the addicted, the sober, the down and out, the upstanding and celebrated. The way the holy God delights to move in and eat at the tables of people like us. Brothers and sisters, it's the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. Living this way will mean giving up following after Jesus for what we can get from him, what we demand from him, what we expect from him. And rather coming to him and pouring out the fullness of our lives and our livelihoods like the woman that met Jesus in Simon's house in celebration of who he is and what he has done in such a way that this room, this room, indeed this valley, is filled with the aroma of Christ's love. It's the only way for people such as us to live in a world 
such as ours. And that's good news. Because Jesus accomplished it. This, as the disciples finally realized when the Spirit of Christ was poured out so generously upon them, finally understanding, is the only way for people such as us, people such as Judas, people as such as all of those gathered from throughout the world, natural-born deniers, abandoners, runners, and betrayers. It's the only way for people such as us to live in a world such as ours. Let's go to him in prayer.